Amen. Great singing this morning. Take your Bibles and go to Romans chapter 6, if you would. Romans chapter number 6. And I want to read verses 6 through 8 this morning. Um, however, we'll only be dealing with verse number 6. Um, over the next three weeks, we're going to deal with each verse individually. We'll deal with verse 6 today, verse 7 next week, and verse 8 the following week. Many times people, when they are exposed to preaching that is in this manner, often are found saying, how can you spend that much time on a single verse of Scripture? For the believer, it's not hard to do and it's not hard to believe, but uh, there are some who are just, they're not used to this. Um, every verse of Scripture, uh, many, many messages could come out of just a single text. Now, true context is we understand that we don't just take the Bible and pick a verse and then preach a single sermon on it. The reason we can do this today is because we've been going through this line by line, verse by verse. We have the context of what Paul's been talking about. So we have to remember everything we've dealt with in the book of Romans, and we have to remember everything that we've been dealt with over the last couple of weeks to understand how we can continue to take this in a line-by-line -line basis. But if you look with me at verse number 6, the Bible says, For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Now this is going to be three-week message basically on Christ died for us. But we're going to look at three different aspects of that particular statement. You'll recall in the preceding verses, the Apostle Paul had wrote about the believer's hope of the glory of God. We saw that in verse number 2. We also saw in Romans 5, verse number uh, 5, that the Bible tells us that the love of God has been shed abroad in our hearts. And we spent a, a, a length last week talking about how it's the Holy Spirit of God that shows us that God loves us. And what a powerful truth that is. Those who have hope in Christ this morning and those who have the love of God shed abroad in their hearts, and I want you to hear me very carefully, will never be ashamed of that relationship. We'll never be ashamed to say, God loves me. We may find times when our faith is a little bit weak. We're going to find times when maybe we're not as faithful as we should be. But there will never, ever, ever should there be shame of the relationship that God loves you or God loves me. You know, there should be no shame in God's love for us. Uh, there should be no ground for us to say, well, I'm ashamed of Christ. I'm ashamed of what it means to stand for Christ. It should be something that because of what Paul is writing here, that Christ died for us. Look at that expression in verse 8. We're not going to deal with verse 8, but we're going to use Christ died for us to kind of build this over the next three weeks. Christ died for us. The entire truth of God's love in Christ is all in God. In other words, it is not our love for God, it is His love for us. The Spirit of God that sheds that love abroad in our hearts was not placed there by us, it was placed there by God Himself. 
If I know that God loves me, it's because the Holy Spirit has placed that truth in my heart. A man or a woman can say, I love God and feel no such thing. I could stand before you and falsely, I'm glad to say that's not the case, I could falsely say, I love God, I love Christ, and really not mean it. But when you see the phrase, Christ died for us, and you see the love of God for us, understand that there can be no mistake, there is no misunderstanding, Christ loves his own. He demonstrated that by dying for his own. Christ died for us. Now in these next three verses, these three verses, and we're going to deal with them in order over the next three weeks, Paul proceeds to give us proof and the evidence of God's love for us. Christ doesn't just say, I love you without proof. God doesn't just say, I love you without proof. So over the next few weeks, we want to answer this question. Who is the us that Christ died for? Who is the us that Christ died for? Us is a very specific word. It is a very pointed word. It's a word that we might say it is towards a particular group. Not everyone could stand up and address an entire crowd of people upon billions and billions of people and whatever it is and say, Christ died for us. But a specific group of people could say those who have shed, had the love of God shed abroad in their hearts could say without any question at all, I know that Christ died for me. Oftentimes, you might ask somebody that question. You may actually say, and you may have done it in, in, uh, recently, or you may have done it in, in years past. You may have said, do you know that Christ died for you? And they may respond by saying, no, I have no idea about that. I have no idea what you're talking about. And we often just mark that up and say, okay, well, they just need to get there. Paul's not writing in those terms. He's writing in terms that those that Christ has died for they know that because they've had the love of God shed abroad in their hearts and they have the hope of the glory of God, which we've looked at over the last couple of weeks. Well, here's the us, and this is what's remarkable about this. Who is the us Christ died for? Well, we're going to see over the next three weeks, he died for three types of people. Now, be careful, be careful to listen to what I said. He died for three types of people. Not individually necessarily standing on them on their own, but characteristics of the type of person that he died for. Number one, he died for the ungodly. Number two, he died for the undeserving. And number three, he died for the unworthy. I'm using alliteration intentionally today and over the next three weeks so we can remember this. Who did Christ die for? Who's the us? The ungodly, the undeserving, and the unworthy. That begins to ask a question now, okay, if we're one of the us, is that me? Ungodly? Undeserving? Unworthy? And the easy answer is yes. The most startling one of these, personally to me, is the first one we're going to deal with today, ungodly. As a matter of fact, I have an easier time coming to grips in a human form with undeserving and unworthy. Where I struggle with as a human being is coming into the reality that Christ died for the ungodly. Because that's the very opposite of who God is. He died for the ungodly. 
And that's what we want to deal with today. Christ died for us, the ungodly. We see that in verse number 6. This describes the ungodly. For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for us. You can see very clearly that Paul is describing a specific time. For when. At a certain time, at a certain point, these things were true. We were yet without strength. Verse 6 alone is the very substance and the sum of the gospel. If, I was to, if you were to tell somebody, uh, what is the, the need for the gospel in one single verse? Romans 5, 6 is it. You, that's, the, that's the sum of the gospel in one verse. For the believer today who knows they're saved, you could say, my very testimony is this, Romans 5, 6. And you could insert this, for when I was yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly, me. Right? That's the sum of the entire gospel. Ungodly. We don't think about that today because that's a hard truth to come to. To be ungodly is to be the enemy of God. To be ungodly is to be the opposite of God. To be ungodly is the opposite, and I get this, is the opposite of love. So Jesus Christ demonstrated his love towards someone who hated him. By nature, we all hate now, I know we don't like to think about that. We think, I'm a pretty good person. I don't hate anyone. We're ungodly to the core apart from Christ. That's, that's depravity. That's what it is to be totally depraved. It means I don't have an ounce of godliness to offer. See, we can, we can come to grips with those other two. I, we can come to grips, I think, with undeserving and unworthy. I didn't do anything to deserve this. I don't have any merit but preacher, are you really going as far to say that Christ died for the ungodly? That's what the scripture says. Those whom he died for were the ungodly. But yet Paul writes that Christ died for us. There's a connection in verse 8 and verse number 6 between the ungodly and us. You might say tonight or today, but it says the ungodly, well, who's ungodly? The whole world is ungodly. Every person that's ever lived is ungodly. But understand that Paul's writing to the church at, at, uh, at Rome there, and he's telling these Jewish and these believing Christians, he's telling them Christ died for us. He's writing to that church. We share something in common with every human being who's ever walked, ungodliness. There's never been a human who's walked this earth who's not been ungodly. That's the equal playing field of the gospel. I can proclaim that the world without Christ is ungodly. But not everybody in the world will recognize the fact that Christ died for them. Now think about this for just a moment. In a series of questions. And some of these are going to seem are, are very simplistic. But I think they'll help for them. We're going to show you some Bible verses to back this up. The first question is this. Who died? 
Christ died. For when we were yet without strength in due time, Christ died. Christ, the only begotten Son of God, in whom God the Father said, I am well pleased. Jesus Christ, the Son of God in human nature. It is He who died. Now, the ungodly didn't die. He died. Look over at Romans chapter 8, verse 34. We're going to come right back this, right back here. But every question we're going to answer with a Bible text. Romans 8, verse 34 tells us this. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession, notice the next two words, for us. It's another particular phrase. It's not a phrase that is just a general term that says, for everybody. If Christ died for you, then that's secured. We sang that song, our inheritance is Christ. That's what our inheritance is. Justification. We we're not going to spend a lot of time on that today. We spent weeks talking about justification. It's the opposite of condemnation. It's the basis of the very atoning death and the resurrection and intercession of Christ. It tells us that Christ is at the right hand of God the Father. That is in a supreme place. Maketh intercession. Now we often use this term that Christ makes intercession for us when we pray. And that is true. But Paul's meaning here is deeper than just intercession when we pray. This intercession, though Christ finished the work of purchasing our redemption, he continues to apply that redemption by interceding for his sheep until everyone for whom he's died for receives all that he has given them. In other words, this is going to continue until all that he died for have been brought home. Now that number is innumerable. We have no way of knowing, but who died? Christ died. His death means it's his purchase. He died for the ungodly. The second question, how did he die? Now we sang about the cross today. We've sung a lot about his death. We sang, hallelujah, what a savior. But how did he die? I don't mean specifically. We could all tell the story. I could go around this room today and I said, tell me how he died. And here's what you would say. He was put upon a cross he was nailed to it. A crowd of thorns was placed upon his head. He was lifted up and he died on that cross. That's just the historical fact. That's just the semantics of it. There's more behind all that. For that, we need to go over to Philippians chapter number 2 and look at verse number 8. You can know the semantics of the cross. You can know the historical truth of it. But here is the reality of what was actually going on. This is how he died. Philippians 2.8 And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. A death on a cross 
was a death of shame. A death on a cross was to be under the wrath and the judgment of the accuser. God, the Father, sent the Son to the cross to die a death of shame under the wrath and judgment of a holy, just God. We might look at this and say, Jesus died under the authority of the Roman Empire. Jesus did not die under the authority of the Roman Empire or under the Jews. He died under the wrath and the judgment of God the Father. In other words, ultimately, Jesus Christ died a death of shame under the wrath and judgment of God. But here's the thing, not for what he did, but for what you and I were ungodly. Imagine dying a death of shame under the judgment and full wrath of God for something you did not commit. Well, that's what Philippians 2.8 tells us. Being found in fashion as a man, Christ humbled himself. Christ's great act of humiliation that Paul talks about here in Philippians is this voluntary submission of Christ to the Father's will. Christ died on the cross in complete accordance and according to the will of God the Father. The greatest need humanity has ever had or will ever have is the need to be reconciled to God. So here's what Christ did. Christ went and did humbly what was necessary to meet the needs of others. Guess who the others are? The ungodly. So he went to the cross, died in your place. And we'll talk about that in just a moment. Paul's message to the saints at Philippi and the message to the saints at Rome was to have the same mindset that God had and Christ had, being found in fashion as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Number three, why did he die? He died for and in the place of as a substitute. That fancy word that the Bible uses is the word propitiation. He was a substitute or a propitiation for all of God's children in order that he might be the just and the justifier of all those that belong to him. Understand this, God could not possibly justify one and lose him. Do you, all, do you understand what I just said? If Christ justified all, then he wouldn't lose one. If he justified them, but they still ended up in hell, what is the natural logical conclusion? They couldn't have been one of the for us. They just couldn't be. He could not possibly justify a man and lose him. <laughs> Let that rattle around in a minute. If he died for all, then everybody should be in heaven and there should be no hell. But he died for us. Jesus Christ is the inheritance. Look at Romans 3. Let's give a Bible answer to this. Romans 3, verses 24 through 26. <clears throat> Paul writing here, and again, we're going to touch on these things in the weeks ahead. Or this one we've been, we've already touched that. Romans 8 we'll deal with in the weeks ahead. Verse 24, we've covered this. Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation, that's that substitution, through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. 
to declare, I say at this time, his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. Notice the just and the justifier there. We see here very clearly that God, Christ is the, must be the just and the justifier. In other words, it is by Christ suffering in his body and his soul unto death through faith. God intends that propitiation for believers in all ages and applies them to them as they trust in Christ. However, understand something here as we see this, this attribute or this propitiation, it is an atoning sacrifice. It's expressive. It is the removal of God's wrath. Okay, so as the ungodly... I am still subject to God's wrath. Okay, so as an ungodly individual, I am subject to the wrath of God. He died as a substitute. He died in the place of the ungodly. For whom did he die? We've said this already, the ungodly. Notice your Bible does not say that Jesus Christ died for righteous men. It does not say that he died for religious men. It doesn't say he, des- he died for those most deserving. He doesn't say he died for the one who was exalted. It says that he died for ungodly men. To be ungodly is not just in our nature, but it's also in our practice. In other words, when the phrase ungodly is there, it's not just that we're depraved to the core. Our nature is, our, our, our actions are even ungodly. Our actions are ungodly. What we do, what we practice. That means it is impossible for a lost person or an unsaved person to ever do anything godly. You say, but wait a minute, they did something nice for their neighbor. Outside of Christ, we are ungodly. Completely. Look at Ephesians 2. Paul dealt with this subject. Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 5. And this is another one of those texts that oftentimes we read it and we read it and we read it and sometimes the light doesn't go off right away. But Paul, as he writes to the church at Ephesus, again, has a particular group in mind. He's not just using mankind in general or the whole world. He says, and you hath he quickened. This would be not unlike me standing here at the pulpit and pointing at one of you and saying, as a believer, you've trusted Christ, you acknowledge Christ as your Savior. I would point to you and I say, and you particular, have he quickened. To quicken means to be made alive. Who were what? Dead. Now, the definition of dead, okay, this is the, this is the scientific fact of the day, means to be without life. Zero. If you're dead, they put you in the ground, I'm not trying to be morbid, There's no life in you. They don't put you in the ground knowingly, or hopefully not, with actual life. Matter of fact, they're supposed to have a series of tests that they go through. 
Not just your heart. They got to go through a whole bunch of tests to actually declare you dead. What they're saying is you're without life. Paul is not talking about physical death. He is saying spiritual death, you're dead, without life. Ungodly. Dead in what? In trespasses and sins. Now, a lot of people like to have a version of death. A lot of people like the comatose Christian better than the death. Because coma means I can come out of it. Coma means I can hear a little bit, right? I mean, people say when people are in a coma, they say go and talk to them because they can hear you. I've never been in one, a prayer if I never will be, but they say they can hear you. To be dead, you don't have the ability to hear. You don't have the ability to do anything unless he quickens you. So unless he makes you alive, you're not springing anything to life. He hath quickened you who were dead in trespasses and sins. Now here's where he talks about the practice, not just the nature. Wherein in time past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, which is the devil, by the way, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. In other words, Paul says, you see all those people walking around in disobedience? That was you. See all those people that are living ungodly lives? That was you. All dead men walking. Among whom also we all had our conversation in times past and the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath even as others. Paul's all but saying, you were ungodly. You lived according to the prince of the power of the world. Of the air, rather. But God, I've got that little word, that phrase highlighted. Everything hinges on that and the quickening from verse number one. But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love, wherewith he loved, what's the next word? Us. Paul, again, is writing to a particular group. You have he quickened. Folks, I cannot go out in the world anywhere. I cannot do this and say, he's died for you, he's quickened you. I can't say that. But what I can say is if you will repent and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, if that person responds, I will know this and I'll know without, without any hesitation that Jesus Christ has breathed life into that person and now they can see and now they have life. I can no more go to a graveyard and tell a person to come out of that grave. I can't do it, but yet we believe in the spiritual realm a person can raise themselves up from the dead and walk. It's never happened and it never will happen. Paul says, but God who's rich in mercy loved us even, look here it is, verse 5, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ by grace are you saved. People wonder why we make a big deal about grace around here because that's what the Bible says. And not some watered-down version of grace that teaches you had, a, you had just enough life in you to scream out, open the coffin lid. You all know what I'm saying? I had just enough life. I had just enough life that I did it. No, he said you were dead. Usually, in a sad state, when a doctor announces to a family, your loved one is dead, they don't usually ask the question, what does that mean? But in the spiritual realm, when the Bible says you're dead, we often want to say, but I've got a little bit of life. But he meant a little bit of life. No, he means you're dead. Okay? Dead in trespasses and sins, ungodly. I have nothing. 
I have nothing to offer. When did he die for us? It's always a matter of, believe it or not, not the time, not when did it happen, but the Bible says, according to our text, and this is what we're going to take, the Bible tells us, for when we were yet without strength. When did he die for us? When we were without strength. Without strength to do what? We've already been told that we were dead and without strength. Without strength means we have no ability to obey him. We have no ability to keep his law. And we have no ability to even help ourselves in any way, shape, or form. That's when he died. We were dead and without strength. Okay, so let's go back to that example. Okay, I was not fully dead. It's almost like Paul covers that. Even if you had a little bit of life in, you didn't have the strength to do it. It's almost as if Paul's writing understanding that this, this idea of being quickened has to come from God. To be without strength, not to obey, to keep the law without ability. When you don't have that ability, what are you in bondage to? You're in bondage to the law. We've talked a lot about the law. That means you're still subject to the law's demands. And guess what the law tells you? You're a sinner and you can't keep the law. So what hope is there? There is absolutely no hope. That means I cannot change my condition on my own. One of the most uh, used uh, verses that describe about changing our condition is found in Jeremiah chapter 13. So turn all the way back there. And for some of you who've been here a while, you know, hey, what happened to that series through Jeremiah we were doing? Yeah, I, we stopped about Jeremiah 23, and I'll, someday I'll share the reason why, but not today. But we're coming back to it. Someday. But look at Jeremiah 13, and look at verse 23. The Bible says, Can the Ethiopian change his skin, or the leopard his spots? Then may ye also do good that are accustomed to do evil. When you can do that, <laughs> now the, the question is hypothetical. Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? The answer to that is no. Just as it's impossible for a person to change his natural skin color, it's impossible for the sinner to repent and do good apart from a nature change. I cannot change my nature on my own. And that's what the illustration here is. He's been giving these things about saying that it, it really, if you can do those things to do good, that, then you can do it. Man cannot save himself from the sin he inherited from Adam. If I could tell you how many times I've heard someone say, I don't want anything to do with Adam. Well, the problem is the Bible declares that you are, for in Adam all men are guilty. See, it's not a matter of picking and choosing. I don't want to be an Adam. I didn't, if I would have been Adam, I wouldn't have sinned. Yes, you would have. You would have done the exact same thing. I'd never talk about the, the wife God gave me like that. Yes, you would have. See, Adam is representative. He's not just a, a story that we read, again, in the Bible time story of our children's classes where we see them uh, eating of an apple and say, now, this is, look, this is, this is a picture of the actual depravity of man what man would actually do. Say, well, God didn't 
give them the law. God gave them the law. He gave them clear instruction. They had one prohibition, and they failed. People say, God will be more fair with me. If God just told me there was one thing I couldn't do, one thing, if that's all there was, I could do it. No, you couldn't. Probably be the first thing you go out and do. It's kind of like when you tell a child not to do something, and the first thing they do is they go and touch it. Stove is hot. Don't touch it. That's our nature. Once we come to the realization that we are rotten to the core, we are depraved by nature, and we're dead in our trespasses and sins, there is no way we could raise ourselves to life. Christ died for us. But notice it says, when he died for us, we were in bondage, but it does give us a little bit of a time frame. He says, for when we were yet without strength in due time. What is this due time? That time is the time that was exactly appointed by the Father. The very moment, the very second, the very millisecond in time that was appointed by God the Father, Jesus Christ died, and not a moment earlier. Paul wrote to Timothy about this in 1 Timothy chapter number 2. This is one of a couple places we could go. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. 1 Timothy 2, verses 5 and 6. Paul, as he's writing to Timothy, again, he's, he's grounding Timothy in doctrine as Timothy is going to uh, take over some of these works that Paul has built up. It says, for there is one God. This sounds familiar, doesn't it? There is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. Now, we've already learned this morning that that ransom for all could not possibly be all of mankind who's ever lived. It's a definition of all types of people or all types of mankind. God calling out a people from every nation for himself. But notice what he says. The emphasis here is on the fact that Christ, as a human being, supplied the ransom. And therefore, he is the only substitute before God on behalf of everyone. In other words, anybody who is being saved is getting there through one mediator and one mediator only, Christ. The testimony of a believer is that Christ died for me. Not everybody believes that. Some people say, well, I didn't need anybody to die for me. I wasn't guilty. And what do we think as a believer when we hear that? Obviously, we know that's not true. That can't be true. All are ungodly. But it is only those who recognize Christ died for me. Oftentimes, we try to elicit a response from somebody and we say something like this. Do you know Christ died for you? And they say, no, I don't know. I don't know Christ died for me. And even after they get through a sinner's prayer, they still don't have any assurance. They say... Christ died for me. I don't, I, don't, I don't understand that. But somebody called me saved, so I believe it. And folks, those are the people that I've counseled over the years who struggle with assurance of salvation over that very thing. Because someone declared them saved instead of them being able to say, I know the love of God has been spread abroad in my heart, and I know God loved me, and I know He died for me. Because all I hear is the same thing. And I say, well, what's your concern? And they say, I'm afraid I didn't do something right. Well, according to Paul, you couldn't do anything. 
So what are you basing it on? Folks, that's, that's the point. Every person I've ever dealt with who struggles with assurance has that same thought. Well, I didn't this, I didn't do this, I didn't do this. And you have to stop them dead in their tracks and say, that's because you're relying on something else. Christ died for me. He knows that. He expresses that. He understands that truth. So this truth, notice that Paul had said, to be testified in due time. This gospel is to be preached. This gospel is to be proclaimed. Christ died in due time. And then finally this morning, what did he demonstrate? What did Christ ultimately demonstrate? The greatest single proof of love is to give one's life for the object of that love. In other words, for when we were yet without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. The ungodly are those that are opposite of that God. Without strength, nothing to offer. Matter of fact, nothing to even give back. He demonstrated his love. The single greatest proof of Christ's love for us is in whom he died for. We've, we've talked about this verse often. Uh, 1 John 4.10. If you want to turn in there quickly, you can. If not, I'll read it to you. It's a verse I think you should have memorized anyway. Herein is love. Declared statement. Not that we loved God. Love did not drive you to Christ on your own merit. Love was spread abroad in your heart. That drove you to Christ. The minute we get to say, I loved God and he responded to me, we have the gospel completely wrong. Matter of fact, we don't even have the gospel anymore. John wrote, he said, here in his love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That's the substitute. For whose sins? Our sins. If Christ died for those sins, if he died for that person sins, he knows it. Now, please understand, I am not saying that Christ's death was not sufficient to die the death for the sins of every man. But I am telling you this, that when we talk about the salvation and we talk about dying for sins, we have to know that as Christ died for us and what that means. You see that people who have hated him and people who've provoked God to anger. Those are opposite of those that Christ refers to as who say Christ died for us. Then turn back to John 15, verse number 12. And I'll conclude with this for today. John 12, and look at verse 15, uh, 12, uh, John 15, I'm sorry, verse 12. John 15, verse 12. Jesus is, of course, talking to his disciples here. Now, I want you to see he's talking in a manner that believers would understand. This is not a commandment that a non-believer is going to fully comprehend because they don't know this. Jesus says, this is my commandment, that ye love one another as I have loved you. 
Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Ye are my friends, if ye do whatsoever I command you. Notice he says, this is my commandment, that ye love one another as I have loved you. Only those who know the love of God could even have a clue as to what Jesus was talking about. He says, I want you to love other people the way I've loved you. How did he love them? He laid down his life for them. Only a person who knows Christ died for them can even begin to understand what that type of love is. Now, in our human mind, we think we understand that. Okay, all I have to do is die for someone else, and I've got that. We're going to see next week and the following week, this demonstrated love was something that's well beyond just a man giving his life for someone else. You realize a man could say about his wife, I would take a bullet for her. I would lay down my life for her and still die and go to hell. Now, I want you to think about that. This is, that is, it's what every husband ought to be willing to do for his wife. It's noble. It's a wonderful thing to think of if it ever, sadly, I hope it never has to happen. But if it is that a man would do that for his wife, but if he doesn't know the love of Christ, it won't mean anything. Just because a man demonstrates a form of love doesn't mean he knows the love of Christ. Jesus didn't want these disciples just to go out and say, hey, lay down your life because you love them. He said, love them as I have loved you. What kind of love did he have for them? He had a love that went beyond what just natural human love is. He went a love that demonstrated what man's greatest need was. Martin Lloyd-Jones simply said this. He said, the love of God is seen in its fullness in Christ's death. If I want to know the love of Christ, I look at his death. If I want to know Christ's love for me, I look at his death. Now, we understand that he didn't stay dead. It's the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ. But understand what he's saying, that when I see the love of God, I see it in Christ's death. Christ died for us. That's love. The for us, we've already covered who the for us is. Ungodly is what our character was. That's what we were. That's what, why Paul writes, as some of you were. There was nothing good or godly about us. By dying for the ungodly, what Paul writes there, and we'll deal with this over the next few weeks, but as he deals with that, that Christ died for the ungodly, He's talking about those who had no aspect of godliness to them. We were ungodly, dead, no strength to mend ourselves. The only thing we could do was be more ungodly. Think about that. That's all you could do is be more ungodly. Yet, when we were without strength, Christ died for us. That strength we needed was to be regenerated. That strength we needed was to be converted. That strength that we needed was to be quickened. And only God had the ability to quicken us. We were without strength. Then, then Christ died for us. I hope you can see this this morning. I hope you can understand we're not talking about something superficial. We're talking about something that is literally the very fabric of why we believe what we believe. 
As a believer today, you should be able to say without any doubt in your mind, I know that Christ died for me. Because I know in whom he dies, there is life. There is eternal life. There is a quickening. I have been raised from the grave. I'm no longer ungodly. I'm no longer living in practice, but I'm no longer in nature what I used to be. Do I still sin? Absolutely. Any person ever stands up before you and tells you that they are without sin, you ought to flee from them as quickly as you can. But we're no longer under the condemnation. We're no longer under the wrath of God. The wages of sin is death is no longer for us. The gift of God and eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. If that's your testimony this morning, then you know the love of Christ. Christ died. I didn't do anything. Next week, we'll deal with who are the undeserving. And it's interesting because Paul's going to give us an example of two types of men. A righteous man and a good man. Oftentimes, we've made the mistake that these may be the same person. They're not. They're two different people. And Paul, there's a lesson in that with regard to Christ dying for us. Let's stand all around if you would and we'll be dismissed in prayer. I'll have Jennifer come to the piano. She will play through after we've prayed. It'll just be a postlude, just some music playing. And if you have an offering, you can bring it at that time. And we'll look forward to seeing you on Wednesday. I will be here at the front and be willing to stay here as long as you need me to be. Uh, but let's go ahead and pray and then we'll, we'll close. And then if you have an offering, you can bring that at that time. Father, we thank you for your word today. Lord, we thank you for the power that's found in the cross. Lord, we thank you for the truths that we've learned this morning. And I do pray, Father, that everyone under the sound of my voice today knows without any hesitation that Christ died for them. Father, we thank you for the ability that we now have to proclaim and preach the truth. We thank you for the quickening spirit that while we were yet dead in our sins, while we were without strength, Christ died for the ungodly. Father, as we go our separate ways today, Lord, may you keep these truths ever fresh in our minds. Father, may we not so easily put them away and begin to uh, misuse them and even misquote them. Father, may the glory of God be our ultimate desire. May we give God all the glory and all the praise and all the honor in our salvation. Father, help us over these next couple of weeks, Lord, as we continue to study this concept and this truth of Christ dying for us. Lord, we're so grateful to know that we're saved and we're kept for all of eternity. Lord, thank you for these folks that are here today. Lord, I thank you for each and every one of them. Lord, I pray that you'll give them safety. Lord, give them a good day of rest today, Father. Give them a good week. Lord, we know that in Christ, every day is good. Lord, what you've done for us already ought to lead us to rejoice. We thank you. We praise you. And it's in Christ's name I ask these things. Amen.